Welcome to the Difference is Black and White podcast. I'm DJ Bree. I'm Chris. And this is our special guest, Dr. Jasmine Scott Hawkins. That's correct. And um, yes, this is our mental health episode. So we brought on a specialist. So Jasmine, can you tell us about yourself? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, thank you guys for having me here this evening. Um, so as I was introduced as, my name is Dr. Jasmine Scott Hawkins. So I am a psychiatrist. I specialize um, in child and adolescent psychiatry, and I work with adults as well. Awesome. Kids and adults. So can you tell us the difference between um, a psychiatrist and a psychologist? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a point that gets very confusing for a lot of people. So um, psychology is kind of a route where you go to graduate school after attending college and you achieve what's called a PhD, um, a postdoctorate degree. And so or you can do um, a PsyD as well. And so depending on kind of which route you go down, um, you'll focus on um, providing like mental health services, primarily through therapy, or um, some people will focus on more of like a research basis and kind of go through that and contribute to the, the body of literature kind of out there in the world. And so the path that I went, um, so I am a medical doctor. So for us, we do college and then we go to medical school. And so when you go to medical school, you're not really sure kind of what you're going to specialize in. So some people will do family medicine or they'll do surgery or obstetrics and gynecology. And so I chose to specialize in psychiatry. And so I work with um, severely mentally ill patients, primarily with medication management and then um, I do some therapy services as well. Gotcha. And then there's also MFTs, which is the, what, yes. what are those again? So then there are therapists. So mm -hmm. there's like um, marriage and family therapists, right. which are MFTs. Mm -hmm. There are social workers that will do therapy. Um, so there's a lot of different disciplines within the field of mental health that can kind of provide services to people. Gotcha. Nice. Mm -hmm. what, what inspired you to, to go into that? Yeah, so that's a big question. So back when I was in college, I thought, you know, I wanted to be a physician. I thought I wanted to do um, obstetrics and gynecology, actually, was what I wanted to do and to work in women's health. And so I, um, you know, I did college and then I took a year at off actually to do research and to um, kind of contribute to the literature for um, women's health. And so um, then I got off to medical school, still with that very much in mind. Um, but when I hit my psychiatry rotation, I was really like blown away. Um, it was very different than all the other rotations that we had to go through. So like with surgery or like family practice, um, because I felt like you could build this really deep rooted connection with your patients that um, in other specialties, just the way it's set up, you're not really able to do that as yeah. much. So that really drew me in that just like deep connection with patients. And then I was also very fascinated by um, the pathology and kind of the treatment and, and all of that. Yeah. 
So where did you do your training? So I did college out at UCLA, go Bruins, and then um, I did some research over at Charles Drew University in conjunction with um, Mm -hmm. UCLA. Then I went out of state to Ohio to um, Wright State University, Boonshoff School of Medicine um, in Dayton, Ohio. And so I did a dual degree program there. Um, So it was where you get your MD, your medical doctorate, and then I also got my master's in public health while I was out there. Um, it's a long road. So then you go through this whole like match process that's kind of like Harry Potter getting like sorted into <laughs> the house. No magic hat though, that tells yeah. you Gryffindor. Or... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I went through that and so I matched back out here at home nice. at um, USC. So now we're go Trojans. Wait a minute, um, wait a minute. That's, that's a trail right there. <laughs> yeah, I forget what go Trojans. Called, like the Bruins, Trojans. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm yeah, right in the middle. So ended up there. So they have a program that's um, connected with L.A. County. So I was working there for my adult psychiatry training. And then after that, you can do fellowship, which is even more training. And so I did um, I went to Harbor UCLA, which is also in conjunction with L.A. County and did um, a program for child and adolescent psychiatry. So you didn't have to do a fellowship. But you chose to do so. Correct. So you're an overachiever. <laughs> you can put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it just helps you to, to subspecialize to kind of get... Um, get really detailed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not bad. Yeah. Now, through your educational experience, because this is the difference is black and white. So mm-hmm. we're going to ask you some questions that compares both black and white cultures. Mm-hmm. How are your classes like? Where is it? Was it uh, heavily on one side of the... Yes. Uh, spectrum, I guess? Or how did yes. that look? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, I, of course, was in the Midwest going to school, so demographics were very different, you know, than out here. So um, the majority of the class that I was in um, were white um, male uh, counterparts. Mm -hmm. Um, There were some kind of minorities sprinkled in, a good representation of... um, female med students as well, Good. but I'm um, definitely in the minority. The minority, mm-hmm. right, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how was that experience um, working with or, you know, training with mm-hmm. white males, majority? Yeah, so it was very difficult. Um, it was very difficult. Well, you say difficult. we're difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it was difficult. I mean, as a woman of color mm-hmm. entering a field that's, you know, been dominated by white males for so long Mm -hmm. that was very challenging and the culture um is very rigid in a lot of ways so um a term that i kind of came across after my experience was kind of the microaggressions and it's this kind of you know build up of kind of this like small t trauma that um you kind of unfortunately go through so definitely it was um, a challenging experience it's not only be a woman but to be a minority woman too Mm -hmm. i'm sure you got both sides of of those little microaggressions yeah especially out in the midwest Mm -hmm. absolutely so Mm -hmm. i did a little research knowing that you was going to be on the show Mm -hmm. and i seen that um black women represent three percent of the uh, physician population? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're in a very, very small um, minority, unfortunately. So, so how do you feel about that? Like, I think that's yeah. huge. I know. It is, it it is, and it's very sad that we're here in 2022 and that that is, you know, the statistic, unfortunately. So, and I think, you know, yeah, I'll just 
we'll get into it more. We I will think. Definitely. But, well, because well, yeah. I wanted to ask, like, what have you done to help that statistic? Yeah. So I think that mentorship, sponsorship, all those sorts of mm -hmm. processes are really, really important. And so I've done a lot of mentoring kind of on my way up, just trying to kind of reach a hand back and, you know, pull up as many people as I can. Um, but it's definitely a very cutthroat, you know, just really difficult field um, because it's not just kind of you and kind of your time that you put into studying and there's just so many different factors that kind of yeah. get into it so um but definitely mentorship and then as you get further along sponsorship and all of that is really critical to help um kind of increase those numbers didn't you serve on some kind of boards to help with the um, administration roles? I did, yeah. So you do have the opportunity um, to serve on the admissions committees, and so I did have the opportunity to do that, um, which is a place where you can have a voice, you mm. know, and to really advocate for applicants. So you're kind of sitting at the table with the people who are deciding who are getting into medical school or to residency or to fellowship um, and being able to say, you know, hey, I recognize maybe this person doesn't match this person with their MCAT score or whatever else, but let's look at kind of in a more holistic way and maybe give them a chance so we can kind of increase representation. So with that board, was it majority white people or was it a mix? So I was able to do it at like the med school level, the residency, and then at the fellowship level. And I think at each level, it was very different. And it also kind of depended on the population of the program. So kind of looking at that in Ohio is definitely different than that here in the States with the, within the programs, but definitely the people that are highest up with those kind of final decision sorts of seats at the table, majority are um, white males. Although there are people, um, there are initiatives to kind of bring in more representation and to diversify the face of, of medicine. What do you think some of the challenges are to get more minorities, especially women or, or people of color, to be part of that system or to get into that field? What do you think some of those struggles are? So I think that, you know, Unfortunately, for many of us, people of color, we're kind of starting behind. So we don't have that like generational representation that can kind of say, you know, you need to start in like middle school, high school, like doing all these sorts of things so that when you get to this point, you know, you're going to be considered or to have these networks of um you know, knowing chairs and this and that that can kind of pull strings to get you by. Like for me, I'm the first in my family to go off to medical school. My mom did go the psychology route. So she's another doctor in the family. Um, but it's like I didn't have that blueprint that, you know, our, um, you know, white counterparts oftentimes do that just kind of generational preparations. We learned a lot about you in a short amount of time. Um, I just wanted to get like straight into the mental health, though. How important is mental health? It's critical. It's critical. And for a lot of people, it's really kind of a life and death sort of thing. Um, and so I, I brought my computer just to kind of share some statistics. And I think a lot of us know that suicide is like the second leading cause of death, you know. And so I think, you know, if you're not um, paying attention and mindful of your mental health, um, then we're not kind of whole as individuals. So it's critical to pay attention to that. So you mentioned suicide. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, men have a higher statistic of suicide. Mm -hmm. um, is that true? 
Yeah, so if you look, you know, textbook, when you're kind of going through those questions of kind of like who has the highest risk of completing suicide, it's going to be kind of like white single males in their like, I maybe misquoting, but like 60 plus age range, um, typically by with a firearm. So that's going to be kind plus. of age. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's going to yeah. be kind of the population that has the highest completion of suicide, which is a an important kind of distinctive or factor of distinction, you right. know, and a lot kind of people of think about it or attempts, but then actually right. successful at it. Completing it. Yeah, that's going to be yeah. that. So why is that, you think? So there are mixed reasons about that that I think can get a little bit controversial because we're also looking at kind of like guns and kind of all of that, which I know was covered on a previous episode for, for you all. Um, but I don't know for sure kind of like what the literature says as far as like this is why, you know, that this is the highest. Um, but uh, there's a lot of, it's multifactorial, you know, because you're thinking about culture and stigma and all of that. So based on your patient population, mm -hmm. can you see why white males are, you know, a higher risk factor? So it's a hard question to answer. Um, to say that I can kind of see that in the patients that I work with, especially because the majority of my patients are younger than I'm working with. But when I was seeing kind of like a fuller age spectrum, um, I think that there's like if you're looking at kind of like military, for example, and kind of like the, you know, PTSD. our veterans like PTSD kind mm -hmm. of like whether or not people are having success in treatment, having access to means and with firearms being kind of that primary mechanism. So yeah, because of that, um, I could see why, you know, that's probably kind of like one of the highest populations it's completing. Do you think minorities have less access to mental health treatment than mm -hmm. um, the white population? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there's statistics to, to back that for sure. Um, the resource that I've find to be really helpful um, is an organization called NAMI. Um, so they're the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And so they have a lot of great like statistics and kind of like visuals and things like that, resources for families. If you have, you know, a family member who's struggling with mental illness um, and all of that. And so um, they have this section that's really great where they do break it down by kind of culture and kind of the statistics. Um, and so there's one which is, so this is a little bit dated, but 2018, that 11.5% of black adults in the U.S. had no form of health insurance, period. And so that's going to limit your access to mental health um, compared to kind of the, the white counterparts. Yeah, I, I, I looked up this research too. It's like there's, I forget the numbers that I, I looked up, but it was not even the access, but they also don't trust or they don't go exactly. to those as well. So mm -hmm. there there's a lot behind that uh we can get into like the, the whole medical field not just therapy or not just mental health where it's there's a distrust of the system especially after you know tuskegee exactly and yeah. uh, a lot of other things it's just mm -hmm. it brings up uh a fear of the medical system and not mm -hmm. the medical system not trusting pain tolerance right um my my son's mom is a nurse mm -hmm. and so she works at martin luther king in mm -hmm. uh, in compton and mm -hmm. um they have all these trainings on like how there's how to, how to work with uh, black patients because they don't trust the system or how do you get them to, you know, follow the medical practice or the prescriptions right. and all that stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. 
so yeah, it, it's interesting that there's there's not that trust, mm-hmm. and then there's also um, there's not that trust on both sides. Right. So mm-hmm. how do, how do you deal with that? How do you get the black community to be able to trust and go to mental health facilities or, or right. therapists or like that. Mm-hmm. So I think representation has a huge part. Oh, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. I'm not a physician, but I definitely think yeah. we need more representation. I think yeah. I will feel more comfortable yeah. with somebody who know or can relate to relate. Me, exactly. You know what I'm saying? So hundred yeah. percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's definitely, like, literature backing that um, sentiment as well that just, you know, that there is a higher degree of trust and comfort if you're um, receiving care from a physician that looks like you. And this Mm -hmm. is across the board. So is someone speaking in your native tongue? Is someone kind of tuned in to different, like, cultural nuances like eye contact and Mm -hmm. bowing and all these different things, you know, that between cultures don't always translate. So so absolutely, um, that's a, a huge factor. And one of the kind of main things that's fueling this drive to kind of increase diversity within uh, medicine. That definitely would help because there's, there's a lot of times where you see, and I don't know if it's almost always white people, but people who don't trust people who speak Spanish mm-hmm. or doctors who are not white. They just, mm-hmm. there's, there's that inclination of just like, Oh, well, you can't help me because you, you speak another language. I'm kind of guilty of it, but I know better. Uh-huh. But you don't trust it, white doctors? No, no, no. <laughs> but when somebody speaks another language, mm-hmm. you kind of feel like they're dumb. You know, like... Oh, like English is their second language, you mean? No, like if somebody's speaking Spanish and they're yeah. not speaking English, you kind of feel like they don't know... Th- I don't know. It's... You have this yeah. kind of... I know like, you don't trust them as much, but then you really have to understand, like, that's their native language. Like, do you speak Spanish? No. So if you went to Spain, they think you're dumb. Yeah, exactly. Right? So it's... Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so there's... there's but I trust. know better. Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But that's like in your mind, it's like, the, yeah. why, why am the fuck I'm talking to this person? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's, that's like a huge point because that's the danger of these like implicit biases, right? Yeah. Because we make these assumptions based yeah. off of experiences and knowledge that we don't have, you mm-hmm. know? So it's like, yeah, if you don't understand what they're saying, you're going to make this assumption. But the same thing, vice versa, they don't understand what you're saying and they may make assumptions about you Absolutely. and so that's why we have to like stop and check ourselves yeah. and not act from those like implicit bias no, for sure. like i definitely know better but yeah. it, like it definitely comes to mind like yeah. you know yeah. like for sure we so, all do it and yeah. it's just yeah. important to highlight that because that's where the danger lies right. you know so how do you how do you get the di- diversification within the medical field is it mm-hmm. that we need to um have more scholarships or more government contact or how does how does that work because you can mentor somebody but i wonder if the black community already kind of writes himself off like oh i can't get there i I can't be a lawyer i can't be in the medical field Mm -hmm. because yeah you you can see that the schooling in in those areas where it's majority minority if that makes sense um they don't get the funding there's some schools like lebron james has his school which is like they're doing those things i think a couple schools actually Mm -hmm. where they're they're focusing on the science and the math and getting these kids to actually if you want to Mm-hmm. get ahead this is how you do it right yeah and it's it's crazy but it does start you know like super early kindergarten you know like having yeah. these like stem programs mm-hmm. in communities of color yeah so that first the interest is sparked right. first you know and yeah. so it's like okay now we have the interest mm-hmm. now kind of what can we do to support you so you can then build the knowledge and the skills to then enter 
you know, a college um, and, you know, study these different mm-hmm. kind of rigorous science or whatever field you want to, but then to be able to have those skills and the numbers because it comes right. down to the numbers, yeah. right? And then the other piece is standardized testing. That's another area where we just kind of start off behind, you know, and kind of the the biases and all of this that are kind of built into standardized testing, not necessarily intentionally, but um, that's another space is kind of like what can we do for our young um, students so that we're able to kind of vie and compete when it comes down to just purely numbers. So it's not that we're not smart enough. I know that. Mm -hmm. So like, what is it that, you know, black people are not getting in these schools? Mm -hmm. Like, what is it you think? I think it's access, you know? So if you're looking at kind of the quality of the education that's provided Mm -hmm. within communities that are majority of color is what's needed to be able to excel and go to the next level provided or not and most often it isn't like i went to high school in the inner city and i definitely don't think i was prepared Mm -hmm. enough Mm -hmm. for the next level like i don't think they provided the tools um i don't think we had the right classes Mm -hmm. granted people did go to college and stuff from Mm -hmm. my high school like college application, like helping mm-hmm. with college mm-hmm. applications yeah. and things like right. that. Like mm-hmm. my mom and dad didn't know anything about that. Yeah. You know what right. I'm saying? Right. So right. Mm-hmm. like, I definitely think these inner cities need to do better. Right. But it, another thing is like, we shouldn't have to move our kids out of the inner cities to go to exactly. you know, white schools. Yeah. Or private schools. Yeah. Like public schools should be good. They should be fully funded. They should have all these, have access to everything that, that mm-hmm. every other white school has. And I went to public school in La Cunada. So like we, I think we had a really great program. We, we, most of our people went to UCLA or USC or Stanford. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they went to these great universities. Mm-hmm. And that, it's weird to compare because I have no experience with the inner city schools. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know what they're really missing. So it, it's educational mm-hmm. for me to figure, okay, how do, we, how do we solve this? Because the more educated and the more successful people we have, the less issues we have, the less right. gang violence we have. And that's, that's my whole thing is it. I think everything should be funded from uh, birth to at least starting high school should be mm-hmm. after school programs should be free. They, all these programs, because mm-hmm. when you're a single parent or even, you know, two parents who are both working, right, right. you don't have time to really help your kids out. And that, that first five, the Cal five that they right. are the first five years of your um, little person's life. <laughs> those are huge years. And they I think are. a lot of times people are neglected. So why is mental health important? Why is it important? Yeah, so I think that it's important because, you know, you have to look at kind of what components of us drive us as human beings, and that's one of, like, the cardinal pieces. So we're so kind of focused in on our physical health, right, and image and all of this kind of based on the media and social media and all these sorts of things that oftentimes we're neglecting or harming our mental health, which is critical, you know, to being able to, interpersonally relate well with people Mm -hmm. to being able to kind of enter the workspace and have like positive work um, relationships, um, you know, and then that ties into kind of our, our spiritual health, our emotional intelligence, like all these sorts of things, you know, are critical for us to be successful human beings. Um, And so, and again, you know, the mental health piece is, so dangerous because it can really creep up on you and people aren't necessarily aware of the ways in which um, things are interrelated. So like just an example, like when you're depressed, it's not that you're just like sad and you're crying, like your sleep is thrown off. You know, oftentimes people have insomnia, 
your appetite is impacted Mm -hmm. weight loss or weight gain if you're eating kind of excessively you know you're isolating so you're not having that social interaction so it's like and all these pieces are within the mental health realm and so it's really Mm -hmm. critical to be healthy in that regard so which um mental health diagnoses usually go un um untreated or like unrecognized um so i think that I'm not like if I were I don't know, like the number to cite or whatever is kind of like the top one. Um, And I think it also varies um, by culture because of stigma um, as well. So that kind of drives that. Um, I'll say, you know, bipolar disorder is a particular diagnosis that's really difficult to treat because people feel really good when they're in their manic space. And so it's really hard to keep them compliant with medication when they're in that kind of euphoric, like, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of space. Um, And it's very dangerous because they can crash really hard, really fast, and then suicide completion can happen, you know. Um, But definitely a lot of people live with, like, mild to moderate depression, anxiety that's going undiagnosed and untreated. They're they're told by family, you know, just suck it up. Like, I had it. You can deal with it. You know, it's like this weakness to kind of seek out support. And so people may have clinical levels of these certain, certain types of diagnoses and just go without support and treatment. Do you feel like that's emphasized in a certain community? And what I'm getting is that kind of more at the, in the black community where it's the suck it up attitude or is it, is, is there statistics to show, to prove that or is it yeah so universal i mean mental health is universal and everybody needs it right but right. is it the are there certain groups that are not getting it or not feel supported that they aren't manly enough or or womenly you know it's not mm-hmm. a strong character when you admit that oh i have a mental problem so i right. need to talk to somebody right yeah so the the black community is definitely notorious for it mm-hmm. you know there's a lot that happens behind closed doors Mm. and you're not supposed to go out into the world and talk about these certain things, you know, Um, things that you're struggling with. You've got the aunt that like talks to herself at the family, you you know, you're not supposed to like talk about, you know, just it is what it is. But, and I know this is like the difference. It's black and black and white podcast, but definitely within other cultures as well. It's huge, you know? Mm -hmm. So like if you're looking at like the Asian culture, for example, um, there's kind of like a pride factor in this kind of, you know, we don't talk about, you know, these certain things outside of our home. Yeah. The Um, stats I saw, like they're the smallest group that actually use mental Mm -hmm. health services, Mm -hmm. right? The smallest. Yeah. And then we've got like within the the Hispanic culture, there's that machismo culture and Mm -hmm. kind of the, the strength and the male versus woman and kind of those gender roles in the families and in the homes and so definitely within different kind of more minority cultures there's all these yeah. pieces that factor into and stigma. I feel like it's compounded with social media and oh, that's a yeah. whole nother monster right there but mm-hmm. I feel like social media you have to live up to your what you're supposed to be or what mm-hmm. social media dictates what you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. feel like that definitely compounds. Mm-hmm. And it, there is a movement where people are kind of saying like, no, get mental health is great. Like you need to go do it. Right. But right. Mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. image you're supposed to project is, is definitely a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure. Yeah. It's really, really horrible for our like adolescents. Yeah. And it's like, literally like killing kids social yeah. media you yeah know? thank god we didn't have social media when we were growing yeah. up <laughs> no, <laughs> for sure. yeah, for sure. yeah. Mm-hmm. some mental illness is um hereditary correct mm-hmm. yeah so is there anything that um like outside elements or anything that can create mental illness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know like 
I'm just thinking like maybe someone gets raped or something, and mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. they go crazy. Traumas. Yeah, it's it's not the correct term, but like you know, they end up crazy after being raped or molested or something. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, they're not crazy by any means, but absolutely. I know it's not politically correct. Yes, yes, yeah. People out there. Call them crazy. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. So I got to yeah. be relatable. Yeah. So definitely, yes, there are a lot of, there's environment, you know, it's like nurture versus nature sort of debate, right? And so there's definitely a lot of environmental factors yeah. that can lead to or that can exacerbate mental illness. So trauma is a huge piece. And when that's going untreated, there's a lot of ways that people can really struggle and end up in really, you know, dire circumstances, substance abuse and kind of dual diagnoses. So when people are, you know, exposed to like marijuana, that developing adolescent brain experiencing psychosis, you know, is that ever going to be reversed? Are they going to develop into having a schizophrenia that may or may not have developed, you know, depending on if they were exposed to I was marijuana. thinking about that coming into this because a lot of people that I know that smoke marijuana, that's like heavy marijuana smokers, mm-hmm. they are usually conspiracy theorists. They have this <laughs> different way of thinking yeah of thinking Mm -hmm. so is that part of it like the marijuana like does it cause like certain things like is marijuana safe yeah so marijuana and that's like a big topic you know absolutely and um marijuana is a psychoactive substance and so yes it can cause psychotic um, symptoms. So that's when you're having like auditory hallucinations. You're hearing things other people cannot hear. You're seeing things other people cannot see. Right. Paranoia. You're concerned, okay, someone might be out to get me. Someone's following me. Someone's like communicating with me through, you know, social media or whatever else. And then that like subtle delusional thought content, you know, that's just kind of like, you know, you can kind of debate, but it's just a little bit off course, you know, Mm -hmm. absolutely can be caused by marijuana use because it's acting in these neural pathways, right? And so it can impact the way that we're processing information for sure. So why do you think they legalize marijuana? Money. Money, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, obviously money, but I I think, well, speaking from personal experience, I I didn't start using it until I was way in college. So I'm wondering if is is the issue more of the adolescence, uh, or is it just it, in general it can affect you and and uh, as an adult? Because I think yeah. as kids, yeah, they should stick stay away from it because mm-hmm. their brains are developing. Mm-hmm. But once you kind of are at that point of development, maybe it's okay. Tell me it's okay. Is it okay? <laughs> <laughs> so again, it's kind of like are you genetically predisposed to something, uh, right. right? And then yeah. are you introducing this substance that's kind of accelerating or unearthing something that mm. may not have become unearthed had you not been exposed? Right. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, that developing human brain it's critical to not have exposure to any of these substances because it's going to impact in ways that may not be able to be reversed kind of over over time like at what age does mental health starts to develop like i know like some adults they go through their whole life and then they hit a point where just like mental health hits Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. what is that or like what age is that 
most common? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a big question because it depends on kind of like the disorder. So if we're thinking about like developmental disorders, mm-hmm. intellectual disabilities, that sort of thing, like autism, for example, that we're going to see very early, you know, yeah. like toddlerhood, you know, you're already seeing evidence and starting to kind of treat behaviorally to kind of set them up for for success. Um, for some people, they may go, you know, through adolescence and hit, you know, like early mid adulthood, and then all of a sudden have this like depressive episode, you know, and it's kind of like, was there something more mild that they pushed through earlier in life or is this kind of their first legitimate depressive episode so you know and so there's something like within the mental health field the dsm um and so that's where we kind of look to kind of classify different like symptom clusters to be able to kind of call them something to kind of guide treatment and so different diagnoses there are kind of like average age ranges for when you will start to see um Although I will say for most, the majority, you're going to start to see evidence kind of once you're hitting those like adolescent years. And are we talking about like, because there's a scale of obviously you need to see a therapist because you need to work out your feelings and how Mm -hmm. to deal with your boyfriend breaking up with you or, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, versus you're having like real mental health breakdown Mm -hmm. um, where um, medication is necessary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, is that where are you going? Are you going about where medication is there or just no, in general? Just, just like, in general, because some people go through their whole life yeah. mm-hmm. and then they have an onset, you yeah, know, some kind in of their breakdown. 20s. You yeah. know yeah. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I, I think it definitely is environmentally, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not the doctor, but <laughs> I, I, we, uh, I think everybody should have somebody to talk to. Mm-hmm. And usually parents are too busy or it's like, well, what you want to talk about is your parents. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we actually, my, my son actually, um, because of uh, my split with my his mom, we actually put him with, with a family therapist just oh, to like great. talk about things, to have be able to uh, talk about your emotions mm-hmm. and, and be in your feelings, but navigate through them. Yeah. And so I feel like that's really beneficial for him because mm-hmm. now he can use those for his future relationships. Right. But a lot of people don't get that. Mm-hmm. And I we're we're lucky in a place where she has really great health insurance, so mm-hmm. it's, it's easy to do. I, I had great health insurance at one point, but like I had to pay a copay, and then I had to pay for the parking, and it was like, <laughs> <laughs> it's worth it? like yeah. and especially the first couple sessions, it's one of those things where you're explaining your whole life story, and it's like they're like, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh, and then like the hour's over or 50 minutes, and it's like I didn't get anything out of this, and so they're assessing, they're assessing, and they're trying to figure out, yeah, yeah and so like process. it takes a few things to get through, yeah. Um, so one, you guys stick with it, but also like it costs money. It does, and that's especially for somebody who doesn't have great health insurance, where they right. have a higher deductible, right? Or their situations they don't have any insurance at all. Mm-hmm. They just don't get access. So right. I'm, I wish that there was more, and I think there are mm-hmm. some that I don't really know of really well, mm-hmm. mental health or family therapists that are more accessible. And I think there's a lot of private companies that are kind of now coming up that are making it super easy. You don't have to go to an office now, right. especially after COVID. I think, can you like obviously recommend that everybody should have a therapist or is it yeah. kind of like until you have an issue, you should, mm-hmm. you should have one? Yeah. So I think that definitely being able to talk through and process things as they're coming up in your life is really important so that you're not harboring and letting things fester. And mm-hmm. then 20 years down the line having this like you know mental breakdown so to speak so I definitely agree that it's really Mm -hmm. important for people to just have someone to talk to and so definitely with mental health there's like different levels right so um, anyone can benefit 
from just kind of talk therapy. And there's like great, you know, telehealth platforms right. and all mm -hmm. sorts of things. There's apps and things that makes it very accessible and reasonably priced as well for people to be able to engage. And so absolutely. Now, you know, in the private sector, it's really difficult because, mm -hmm. you know, with when you're kind of going to a higher level of needing kind of like a certain modality of therapy, for example, to right. address a specific problem. And so things can get very costly very quickly. You know, mm -hmm. we definitely do within, you know, L.A. County, Ventura County is where I'm kind of most familiar. We have systems in place where you can be, you know, you enter like a county mental health system, for example. Yeah. You're assigned a therapist. You're assigned a case manager. If you need medication services, you're assigned um, a psychiatrist. And so you do receive access to services. Um, and so, but then That's there's paid that. through the city? So there is access? Okay. Yes, there there mm -hmm. is, so that it's at no cost to yeah. the family. But then there's barriers to that. You know, like, okay, where are these clinics located? Right. Do families have transportation to get to these appointments? Can they get time off of work? during the hours that these clinics are operating you know what is the quality of services that they're receiving based on their level of impairment and so there's all these different factors yeah. you know that, that and are those play. medical professionals people of color where they feel like they're relatable and they right. can actually understand because right. i think that's again a, a big problem where it's I don't trust you. I don't. I don't want right. to see you because you don't understand what I'm going through. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's a huge piece when you don't trust, you know, and then mm -hmm. you're not going to engage. Right. Um, and then oftentimes, you know, it's this like really tenuous sort of space because you might get someone to engage for the first time. They're yeah. finally doing it, and then they have a negative, you know, experience, and then they're not, you know they don't yeah. ever want to come back. Out. So it's tough. So um, two things: is mental health curable, or is it only treatable? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a good question. So it depends on what we're talking about, you know. So if we're looking at like psychotic disorders, so if we're looking at like a schizophrenia, you know, a schizoaffective disorder, these sorts of things, we can treat to a degree, but there's kind of this level, this kind of like glass ceiling level yeah. of impairment that people unfortunately will experience depending on the level of severity of their mental illness. Um, there are things like adjustment disorders, for example. So someone may um, be in like a car accident. It's a really traumatic experience for them. They develop depressive symptoms. They develop anxiety symptoms. They get treatment very quickly after that experience. Those symptoms resolved. The adjustment disorder is cured and doesn't progress to a major depressive disorder or you know, a generalized anxiety disorder, although for some that there's that risk that that will happen. So with some of your families that you talk to, mm -hmm. is it stressful for the families to have a kid or a, a, a husband or somebody, mm -hmm. a wife? Is it stressful on the family? Yeah, yeah, it is. And that's the thing <laughs> that kind of divides like um, child and adolescent psychiatrists from adult psychiatrists mm. because when you're working with children and adolescents you know in particular it's the whole family yeah. you know and oftentimes there's pathology in the parents and so you're kind of 
walking this, you know, doing this dance where, you know, it's like you're not treating the parents, but you are supporting them so that they can get services. Exactly. All that parent training. Mm -hmm. And then absolutely, when you have a family member with a severe mental illness and you're having to navigate, you know, are they living in like a board and care facility, you know, kind of like, are they on, you know, receiving like disability to receive income? Are they able to administer their medications? Are you having to supervise that? Or are you having to find a place that can do that you know do they have unsafe behaviors are you the target of their unsafe behaviors are they aggressive you know there's just like all these things so absolutely it's the whole family that's impacted i say there just to trigger off of that like Mm -hmm. there's there's some families who've had issues that they've had episodes and then they call the police Mm -hmm. and then i guess is your recommendation is there somewhere else somebody else to call because obviously there's been problems where the kid ends up getting shot because the police the police aren't aren't the end all be all. Like they can handle certain situations, but I don't know if you wanted to speak on anything on that, and then we can kind of circle back. But that I think it's really important that mm-hmm. there needs to be more mental health field officers, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. right, right? As opposed to political tactical or uh, police tactical officers. Right, right, because the training is very different, Absolutely kind of different. like what yeah. a police officer is told when they they're see a threat, and they're they're trained to right. take out the threat, right? Which is right not the situation it depends on what the situation is sometimes right. it's yeah. like you're in panic mode all you know is 911 you call yeah. 911 right. it's just being able to say those like keywords like this person has a mental health history right. or something yeah. to trigger them to then send out that team yeah. which usually a social worker social will worker, come right? with the the police to mm-hmm. assess and they'll kind of determine okay are we putting this person on a 5150 which is an involuntary 72 hour hold where they're taken into these LPS designated facilities to receive involuntary treatment right. for it can be you know less than or like a lot longer yeah. than that you know yeah. so just somehow you know expressing that so then, you know, it also depends. So, like, DMH, the Department of Mental Health, there's, like, an access line that yeah. you can call. So if you have the presence of mind in those moments, you can call that gotcha. or, um, you know, to try to trigger just that mental health team to come out and right. assess. So. But then, again, that's all with funding. So it's, like, not every – those small little towns are not going to have it. They're going to send Absolutely. their three cops they have for the whole area. And right, right. They have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. yeah. Is jail a, a good place for rehabilitation or – do you think there's an alternative for people that suffer mental health crisis? Mm-hmm. Am mm-hmm. I wording that right? And yeah. It's like a facility for them specific. Because uh, like, I don't think everybody deserves jail. You know what I'm saying? Like right. if you suffer from mental illness, like what, how is that helping you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. right. so like what would you yeah. suggest? Well, didn't we also used to have mental health facilities fully funded? And then I don't know if it was Reagan or somebody who decided to defund those or, or take them away. Right, right. Speak on that if you want. Yeah, I yeah. so these are big um, topics of debate. And so I will say, you know, so when I was at USC in particular, we did have a lot of interface with, like, Twin Towers Correctional Facility um, and our, like, inpatient mental health board. And so, no, jail is not the place for someone who is actively mental mentally ill to be you know because oftentimes they don't have um the capacity to really understand their actions and so to have a consequence without treating them and helping them to regain capacity to 
you know, understand. And so a lot of, so there is a field of forensic psychiatry, which was something that um, was really interesting to me in training. And so you deal a lot with that, you know, um, and so, for example, you're going into the jails, and so when people have these charges, they're assessing their capacity. Like, can they understand what their lawyer is talking about? Do they understand why they were arrested? Just basic things. Yeah. And so what they then do is if they deem that they don't, that they lack capacity, then they're funneling them down the mental health route so that they can receive treatment. If they deem that they do have capacity, then they go down kind of the legal route and whatever. Yeah, and so, and then there are also things called mental health courts which they're using to try to decompress jails you know and funneling people who have like petty crime that's associated with untreated mental illness so that they can mandate mental health treatment substance abuse treatment all these sorts of things so they're not you know funneled um I will say, you know, something that was really kind of terrifying kind of you know in training and being in a, a county facility is that you know oftentimes when people who are in jail which not everyone, but there's a really high percentage of people that have something called antisocial personality disorder. And so they become um, very skilled at saying and doing what they need to so they can get sent to, you know, the mental health ward or whatever and get a break from the general I, population. I, I, I would yeah. crazy. Like, <laughs> I was say, well, that's with the, the white shooters, like every time it's like, oh, he's he had a mental breakdown. Right. And they're kind of excused that way. And yeah, I mean, like, yeah, to be to want to shoot up anybody, you do have a mental breakdown, but I still don't think that's where we should be going with that kind of. Yeah. It's a little too late for that kind of thing. Y yes and no. Yeah, it's kind of so. You know, people. What gets really dangerous is because then you end up having these people who kind of know how to say the right things that right. are in like a mental health ward that is not they're not cuffed or like yeah. in you know cells or whatever and you have people like me like I got assaulted when I was an intern by um, a patient you know and it's it gets really scary because there isn't the capacity to manage those like antisocial tendencies and aggressive right. behaviors in a mental health ward that is more appropriate for like a jail mental health space but you know absolutely I think this all just kind of speaks to the importance of prevention you know so right. like people all these people these mass shooters like all the things you know that have happened prior to yeah these there's very a lot of checklists that's like yeah they did that well we didn't do anything about it yeah they did right. that they didn't right do anything it's about just it. like unbelievable yeah. and then they have these massive tragedies to then right. you know try to clean up so you say you got assaulted i did so can you tell us about that yeah, I um, and unfortunately, it happens to like a lot of people that work within the mental health field, yeah. you know, especially when you're working with, you know, in on these like inpatient wards in the emergency room. Yep. And it's not because of the people who are these like chronic, severely mentally ill. It's this mixing of, you know, people who have these antisocial personalities that are more appropriate for jail you know and they've like swallowed something and now they're here on like our mental health ward when the swallow was you know something that we call malingering where there's this intention behind the secondary game you know from their actions um so so i just want to make it very clear that this is not kind of necessarily the people who have these chronic mental illnesses that are acting in these aggressive ways you know mm -hmm. it's actually a more rare occurrence more often it's like substances 
that's probably the number one. You know, we have people coming in on like PCP, methamphetamine, you know, heroin, and they're just very aggressive. And it's like, you know, places are underfunded, they're understaffed, you have the capacity to appropriately run these codes, you know, to kind of manage people in a humane way, but also a safe way so that we're not all, you know, getting attacked and injured. Um, For me, I was, um, I was like, on working on like an inpatient ward and um a patient just got really agitated and um i was entering the ward behind the it was like this old school where you had to use keys and like double lock you know so someone like ran in i had to be present on the ward um, because it was my patient and so i'm trying to come in and like lock the door and when all that's happening she's like coming around the corner they're trying to get me to run into the nurse's station. It's too late to, like, exit the ward without right. her, like, eloping from the ward. So I just turned, and she just, like, swung at me. Unfortunately, I was, like, pregnant at the time. But it's like, boom, that was now a trauma, you know, that's occurred. And so for anyone that undergoes trauma, then you do need that support to process and, Decompress. you know, yeah, and to kind of recover from from that. Yeah. Crazy. So how, how did that make you feel? Like, did you feel supported by your um the facility that you was working with or yeah so I did and I didn't you know it was a really tough time especially because I was like my first year so entering year is your first year of residency training so you've done medical school you've decided like what you're going to specialize in and then your intern year is a more kind of general year so like I had to rotate through like pediatrics and neurology internal medicine all these different things you know you're working with all kinds of patients and then you get more kind of specialized as you go through the years of, of your residency training so this was my first year like excited you know and boom this happens and so I think that you know there were conversations to talk about you know how it impacted everyone because I wasn't the only person that got assaulted um but I think in kind of trying to figure out what could have been different that was where some of the comments started to sting a little bit and made it difficult to kind of process through but um but at least they did provide that space to to talk through it right I kind of want to circle this back to the comparisons, I guess. But what are most of the traumas that maybe the the black community see versus the white community? Like mm-hmm. Where is the focus, I guess, of, of that? Of the trauma, yeah. yeah. So definitely something that's really, you know, unique, not just to the black community, but I'll just speak to that for now, sure. which is that we do have this, like, generational trauma, mm-hmm. you know, and this, like, collective trauma dating back to slavery, right, that yeah. we just have in our blood, you know. Yeah. And so, and it's linked to physical manifestations of that. So we've got high blood pressure, we've got diabetes, you know, we've got chronic heart disease, all yeah. these different things. That's not that just from tied. It's not, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, that makes it worse, but no, that's not it. But, Which is so um, good, but I'm sorry. It is. It's, it's good. We got to, yeah, we have to, you know, be mindful of how much <laughs> we consume. <laughs> right. So, but yeah, it's like we've got this collective generational trauma that is directly tied you know there's literature tying that to these chronic illnesses that we're just predisposed to Mm -hmm. um so that's one piece you know and then we've got we talked about microaggressions you know we've got colorism we've got black hair can I touch your hair you know like all these things we've got you know like oh you're so articulate and you know oh you you're able to get good you know just these little you know things that really you know it's like a a stone in a river you know just getting like and I'm I'm guilty I'm I'm, I'm definitely I'm guilty of some of those things too I mean I Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the white community 
we don't know we don't know better we don't know that we're doing it mm-hmm. at the time obviously like mm-hmm. touching hair like don't do that <laughs> but it's the little things that just are subconscious at this yeah. point so yeah. i think that's the whole reason this podcast is 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 out and, and we're doing it is because mm-hmm. we need to understand these little things mm-hmm. and unfortunately mm-hmm. most of our audience is black mm-hmm. and then black and female too mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. so i need to we need to get the white people to actually see and understand like mm-hmm. recognize what we're doing yeah and then try and combat it and try mm-hmm. and minimize it or eliminate it really yeah mm-hmm. so that's it'll take time unfortunately but i think that's who our goals that we're trying to get to mm-hmm. and i think it's amazing i think it's really important and really fantastic that you guys are doing this yeah. you know and it's really timely because it's like there's been you know so much energy and kind of upheaval with like yeah. george floyd and kind of all these you know what we've experienced and it's like we need to continue to learn from each other yeah. and continue to spread this awareness um if we're going to get anywhere, you right. know, cause it's yeah. like, it's really, you know, a lot of people, I mean, just this week, people just crying, you know, in sessions talking about how the weight of the world that they're feeling, yeah. you know, and carrying on their shoulders. And it's like, what do we do? Like, what are we going to do? And so these things like this are doing something. So I definitely, yeah. you know, commend you guys for creating this space. Cause it's so important. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely very important. And it definitely helps when we have professionals like yourself who can kind of walk us through it because we can talk about the differences all we want but like to have the actual person in the field to talk about it's mm-hmm. super helpful oh thank so. you thanks for having me yeah absolutely. i don't know if we actually like covered but um which race is mental health most prominent in Mm, okay yeah and i think i pulled what do you mean by mental health because mental health is like mental illness illness okay Mm -hmm. because you mental health i'm like yeah yeah. Yeah. i was staring at your shirt so mental health (laughs) (laughs) yeah so it's funny i was just looking at that those numbers so again just to kind of cite my reference i'm looking at nami like if you're interested nami.org n-a-m-i.org and they have a lot of just user-friendly like statistics resources all sorts of things so i um am looking at the annual prevalence of mental illness among U.S. adults by demographic group. Um, And this is, uh, I believe, 2020 data. So um, the highest is going to be non-Hispanic mixed multiracial, or I'm sorry. So let me tell you what they break it down by, and then I'll tell you which ones are the highest. So they've got like non-Hispanic Asian, non-Hispanic white, non-Hispanic black or African-American, non-Hispanic American Indian or Alaska Native. They've got non-Hispanic mixed uh, multiracial, non-Hispanic Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander. Then they have Hispanic or Latino and then the LGBTQ community. And so Mm -hmm. that community has the highest prevalence at 47.4. Percent LGBT. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, following That's interesting. Yeah, to follow is going to be non-Hispanic mixed or multiracial, which is also pretty interesting if you think because that is climbing. You know, is mm-hmm. kind of like interracial relationships and all of that is on the rise, and so that's at thirty-five point eight percent. Following that is non-Hispanic white at twenty-two point six percent. Um, and then following that is going to be, um, it's close between non-Hispanic American Indian or Alaska Native is 18.7, and then Hispanic or Latino, 18.4. So those are the the top um, when we're looking at prevalence. And you reminded me because I was going to ask, ask about this. So um, the LB. LG. LG. <laughs> I'm sorry. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, okay. transgender. 
sorry, I don't know how to say it, but um, <laughs> is being gay or trans transgender is that a mental illness? It's a great question. I was going to ask that yeah, too because that's that, a great. What question. is that in the mental field? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of conservatives who say like, "Oh, you're just mentally deranged from what's normal." Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what what is that considered? Yeah, so that's a great question, and this is a a really like controversial space to enter so because when you're looking at the dsm right which is like that diagnostic manual that everyone in mental health is using again you're looking at symptom clusters to classify these different like labels and so you know there's different schools of thought some people are like oh you know we shouldn't be boxing people in for other people are like no this is absolutely necessary so we can kind of standardize things so the dsm is on 5TR, just came out this year. I don't know if they changed this from, like, the DSM-5 to this, like, new one that just came out, but there is something called gender dysphoric disorder or gender dysphoria. So it's as if being identifying within kind of these different um, boxes, you know, and within the LGBTQ community is... Um, fitting under kind of like a diagnosis. Um, The idea is that it's more kind of this, um, is dissonance the right word between kind of your, you know, what people see you as and then kind of what you internally feel that you are. So that struggle, I think, is what the goal is to kind of label rather than because you're identifying as this, you are mentally ill. But it just the fact that it's in that huge manual and has been for so long Mm -hmm. um is very hurtful you know for that that community so but definitely you know for people who are identifying within that community most often their chart will have that particular diagnosis in there because it's a as a disorder chemical imbalance right so it is not necessarily a chemical imbalance no so it and it depends on like what we're talking about Uh you know so like So, for example, you know, if you are identifying as, like, lesbian, so you're biologically female and you are attracted sexually to other biological females, that's not, like, any sort of, like, chemical imbalance per se, you know. Um, If you're looking more kind of in, like, the transgender space, and I apologize if I'm misspeaking because I'm definitely not, like, an expert by any means in any of this, but from my understanding, kind of if you're looking at more of the transgender space, um, so there's some theories of kind of, like, the male mind versus the female mind and whether that's in a male body or a female body. And so if you're born with, like, a male brain in a female body you know then that is that a chemical imbalance I don't know that I'd call it that but there is this kind of um where you then would enter kind of the transgender space because the brain that's in your body is not matching and so you go to so I notice that that you're being very careful with your wording (laughs) yes Uh (laughs) she has a career to worry about (laughs) yes so is that difficult when and I don't necessarily know your full beliefs but is that Mm -hmm. difficult when like that's not your belief or you know or some of the physicians that's treating these patients is that like difficult you know like people he she's a girl and she wants to be called a him you know or Mm -hmm. you know the pronouns like is Mm -hmm. is that is that difficult do you think so 
that's where I think, you know, it's important to think about kind of the core of who you are as a person and whether you're true to the field that you're working in, you know. So if you are, you know, authentic and abiding by, you know, these oaths that we take to be physicians, then that should not be... Mm -hmm difficult you know Mm -hmm. to to do that because you're you're not supposed to view people through your personal lenses you know Mm -hmm. so if you're this like hardcore christian who thinks the bible says this and that and this is wrong and this is right you know you're not supposed to be looking through that lens when you're working with your patients you know Mm -hmm. um but that's where this like lack of trust comes in right because then who knows what people are saying like when they go home and they're behind closed doors and you know kind of the body language that they're emulating when they're in the room and whether that you know comfort or lack thereof is being translated to the patient you Mm -hmm. know so i mean I'm definitely an ally with the community. So for me, you know, I'm in full support. Um, I have come across people where it's difficult for them because of their personal beliefs. But that's where we don't see eye to eye because I don't feel like you should be seeing through your personal lens, you know, when you're working with people. Medical field, yeah. There, there was this really great picture I saw of these Klansmen who were bleeding out or like has some kind of injuries and there's mm. black doctors all around them. And it's just like, mm, yeah, I can't imagine the thought process, but Hey, I got to, I got to treat them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's, yeah. that's real. It's reality. Sometimes yeah. you deal with people that you don't agree with and, mm-hmm. or just, you know, not, not your understanding. Right. Cause it's your duty, right? Yeah. You know, it's like if you're at, you know, the gym and somebody has a heart attack on the treadmill next to you and you're a doctor, like you do, you act, you know, um, to the best of your ability. But, um, I mean, you're not going to stop and say like, did you vote for Trump? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you just, you do what you need to do. Exactly. Unless he has a MAGA hat and you just. (laughs) Still got to do it. Still got to do it. Just throw it to the side. Can you imagine doing CPR and it's right there? (laughs) So speaking of Trump, are there people or do you um, have um, clients or or patients or people that you know of that are in higher positions that suffer from mental illness? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are people who are able to achieve a high degree of power Mm. despite their substance abuse, you know, despite their mental illnesses, despite their personality disorders, which is another thing that's just so fascinating. Um, So absolutely, you know, there are people. And I mean, you know, if your mental illness isn't impairing, you know, your decision making capacity, then that's great to be able to kind of surpass that challenge. But when we start to enter that territory, where it is, you know, um, that's where things can get a little bit tricky. For our viewers out there, like, what would you, like, recommend or what do you think people should know about mental illness? It's really important to um, just kind of collectively let our guard down about mental illness, Mm -hmm. you know. We all have, and the other piece is kind of like, that word illness or kind of like mental health disorders and all these things and kind of the language makes it difficult for people to kind of let their guards down. Mm. And so we all have a mind, you know, we all have emotions, you know, we all have trauma, we all Mm. have feelings, all these things, right, Mm. just as human beings. And so it's really just important to kind of normalize that 
not every day is going to be easy and perfect. Mm -hmm. And when we're in those tough spaces that like our fellow human counterparts, we need support and we need to have that humility, you know, to kind of humble ourselves to step out and to to support and also to support each other, you know, because sometimes we may not see it and we've got our head in the sand and we're trying to just push, push through and go, go, go. And someone might say like, hey, like, you need a minute, you know, and just yeah. pausing and accepting that and taking that in and getting the support that you need, you know, and making sure that the people around you have that as well and knowing that that's okay. During 2020, obviously a lot of people had a lot of time to themselves mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. isolation was mm-hmm. a huge factor. Mm-hmm. If you were lucky enough to be with somebody and isolated with somebody, then that kind of helped. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you didn't have somebody, then it was a really difficult mm-hmm. experience, yeah. especially for families not knowing if you're going to see them or when you're going to see them again. Right. So right. that was a huge deal. Like, how has how that affected the community, especially now? Like, mm-hmm. we're kind mm-hmm. of, we're sort of post-COVID. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, people will argue that kind of to follow, you know, as it's kind of like that wave is starting to crash down, then there's this, like, mental health wave, you know, that has picked up. Yeah. And it's like, and it's very real. And mm-hmm. those of us that are in mental health are feeling the impact, the volume yeah. of people that are for the first time seeking treatment mm-hmm. and are, are in just really bad shape, you know, and in need of help and support and, and treatment and whatnot. So absolutely the numbers have gone up, the mm-hmm. volume, and it's kind of like, the system does it have the infrastructure in place to hold and to provide the support that people need you know um i think that definitely telehealth has been great you Mm -hmm. know because it has you know some people their anxiety you know at least prior to the pandemic they were able to get to the grocery store and this and that and they can't do that anymore like they can't get out of the house they're just debilitated by their anxiety and so at least we're able to reach them through Zoom and telehealth visits or whatever, right. you know. Um, but absolutely, it has impacted on a global scale yeah. um, mental health for sure. So maybe mm-hmm. for the younger generation, it'd be a good field to get into. Yeah. Because we need more of those. Yeah. We need more nurses. We need more mm-hmm. uh, mental health providers. We do. We do. We need a lot more people mm-hmm. in mental health. And it's not an easy field. You know, it's yeah. a, it's a tough field. And, um, but we need more people in it doing yeah. the work to just kind of support our, our fellow, you know, humans. So I believe I have one more question. You take on the weight of a lot of patients, mm-hmm. you know, so what do you do for your mental health? Yeah, and that's important. You know, it's very important to, you know, maintain and to, you know, support your own mental health. And so I go to like my little workout class at least once a week, you know, where I have that space to just like Mm -hmm. release. Um, I have the app Headspace, which I think is really phenomenal. Um, If you're looking for like a mindfulness meditation app, it's got like quick little like breathing exercises. Mm -hmm. And so you know, if I'm feeling things rising up, I'll just do a little like headspace thing to just kind of ground myself, um, which I find to be really important. I'm a big family person. So spending time with um, our kids, with family, um, having meals together, cooking together, traveling together, um, 
you know, all those sorts of things, our pets, you know, people have emotional support dogs. Yeah. We've got our pets in the home um, that just bring so much joy, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that especially so like I'm a mom, I'm like working full time, like there's a lot going on, you know, and I'll talk to a lot of other moms who are like, I just don't have the time. Like I just, I can barely, you know, yeah. run to the restroom, take a shower, anything, you know, and it's like we have to just, just like we schedule our kids going to soccer and ballet and that we have to schedule time. in time for ourselves. Yeah. And that's something I've had to learn, you know, because I for so many years have just been like, go, 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 go. And you just like survive and like, you yeah. know, but it's that's not a way to live. Burnout you know? is definitely a real thing. It is. Especially it being is. a parent is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, you don't. The only time you have is after they go to sleep and at that point you're too exhausted to do anything for yourself yeah, too so. yeah it's true it's definitely true so scheduling even if it's like okay when the alarm goes off i'm gonna do like three rounds of box breathing you know mm -hmm. that's a moment of mindfulness and that's important you know if i'm gonna be in the shower if you're religious you're doing prayer work or something you know you're yeah. meditating just finding those those spaces in those times to take care of yourself extra time in the bathroom i don't know if that's a man man thing but that's, that's my time to I, get I, my I, I mental that, state back. I, I, I'm in there forever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah. do you think it's important for um, mental health workers to um, also talk to um, therapists or other mental health workers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, and then when you're going in through training to a degree, depending on kind of what um, – area of the field you're in that's typically built into a degree so for example you'll have like supervision where you're talking through like appointments you've had with patients how it impacted you mm -hmm. you know are you experiencing vicarious because vicarious trauma can happen you know yeah. someone may talk you through you know their narrative of when they were raped and, and you can experience like this vicarious trauma and so yeah. being able to process through that is really important um so absolutely and i think we have to you know go by what we're telling people you know so if we're experiencing symptoms of depression or anxiety or whatever else we do need to go out and seek that support you know it's yeah. critical um um, so I definitely say that's important. And before we close, just give us one of the best stories that you've <laughs> experienced um, with a patient. Okay, let me think. Or most interesting. Okay, I the first one that just came to mind, it just made me smile thinking about it. Um, which I'll just tell you, that's one great thing about the field of mental health is like the stories, like you just cannot make this stuff up it's just like amazing but um i was working on um an inpatient uh floor um and so when you're inpatient that in order to get there you have to be quite sick you know and so there was this woman, she was this like really sweet um, Hispanic woman. She was in like her like early 60s and she was brought in on this involuntary hold and it's it sounded horrible. So like the, the people in the field, they write up these holds, you know, like, you know, we have like a 65 year old Hispanic woman um, experiencing auditory hallucination, whatever. So mm -hmm. on hers, it told this story of how she was like barricading into her home because El Chapo was um, after her and after her family and that they were going to kill her family. And um, 
So this is being translated as like, you know, delusional thought content, like mm-hmm. visual hallucinations, yeah. grandiosity, like why would El Chapo be after her, right. blah, blah, blah. And so she's like, I'm telling the truth, I swear, like, please, you know, this is real. And so um, <laughs> one of my um, co-residents at the time, so it's really important, we're supposed to collect collateral, which is where you go, you call families, you say, you know, we have your family member here, you know, mm-hmm. can you tell me about them, blah, blah, blah. Just so you're not just going by what's on the hold and what they're telling you, right? So um, he went to collect the collateral, and we're trying all these phone numbers. They're not working. And so long story short, um, he reached um, one of her sons or someone. And so he explained that they rented a room in her home Mm -hmm. and that this guy, El Chato, with a T, (laughs) was this, like, gang member in their community. And so um, they were renting a room. They found out about the gang activity. And so they like kicked them out or evicted them or whatever. Yeah. And he had this vendetta to come back. He threatened to kill her children wow. and blah, blah, blah. But it was like the difference between a P and a T. You wow. know, she's talking about El Chapo. They were hearing El Chapo thinking like yeah. this woman. But El Chato was after her. <laughs> <laughs> it was going to kill her. You know, so that was like. And so then it became, okay, you know, safety thing and like whatever. But yeah. anyways, that's just like one story that brings a smile to my face. And it underscores, you know, if there's any trainees listening, the importance of collecting collateral because had he not reached this family member she would have been who knows how long you know and on all kinds of medications you know but it's like no she was (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot to to unfold with mental health Mm -hmm. um so we can't do it all Mm -hmm. because we would be here for hours and (laughs) we don't have that capacity but um thank you so much for being here i I know there's uh, a a lot of people who be um can use this and benefit from it Mm -hmm. and, and understand that um we all need to, to talk about our feelings and, and flush mm-hmm. things out. Mm-hmm. Mental health is super important, so it, mental health matters, yes, as you can tell. Yes. So, so, so check yourself. <laughs> make sure you're, you're feeling good. Check in with your friends. Like That's, that's mm-hmm. probably the biggest thing you can do, especially mm-hmm. after the pandemic, is just yeah. family mm-hmm. and friends. Um, check in with them mm-hmm. often. Yeah. Are you open to people following you? Yeah, Are- yeah. And I, I should listen to my husband, who said I should create this, like, page <laughs> you know which i haven't done yet but people can definitely follow me and then i will transition to a more like public yeah. mental health related we, well we can definitely no, help you sure. with some videos i definitely think you should do that for sure mm-hmm. all right guys we want to thank dr hawkins for joining us today she's very very helpful in, in helping us break down the mental health um with both the black and white experience with that and uh, we're gonna put some resources down in the description so you guys can check those out um, thank you for joining us, and thank we'll uh, we'll see you next episode. What's the, what's the difference between?